Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Dr. M's Women and Children First podcast. This is podcast episode number 13, and today I have the pleasure of interviewing Dr. Peter Rowe. Dr. Peter Rowe is a professor of pediatrics at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. He is the inaugural Sunshine Natural Wellbeing Foundation Professor of Chronic Fatigue and Related Disorders and serves as the Director of Chronic Fatigue Clinic at the Johns Hopkins Children's Center. His areas of clinical expertise include chronic fatigue syndrome and other disorders characterized by fatigue and orthostatic intolerance. Dr. Rowe and his colleagues were the first to describe the relationship between chronic fatigue syndrome and treatable orthostatic intolerance syndromes, as well as the association between Ehlers-Danlos syndrome and chronic fatigue syndrome. Dr. Rowe received his undergraduate degree from the University of Toronto before completing his medical school degree at the McMaster University Medical School in Ontario, Canada. He then went on to receive his residency in pediatrics at the Johns Hopkins University and then his fellowship at Robert Wood Johnson General Pediatric Academic Development Program. He served on the staff at Johns Hopkins University from 1991 on until today. I had the pleasure of connecting with Dr. Rowe a few years ago with a complicated patient that I was trying to help get through some of these issues of chronic fatigue and hypermobility and orthostasis, which is low blood pressure changes. And she was very complicated. And I reached out to Dr. Rowe and he was unbelievably gracious, helpful with his time and effort and pointed me in the direction of many things uh, that I learned and studied subsequently that added to the armamentarium of things to do for helping these patients. Chronic fatigue syndrome and now long COVID are very murky waters. Dr. Rowe has done an excellent job of helping us understand some of the root causes of these diseases, but we still are somewhat in the dark as to what's really going on in many of these patients. How much of it is uh, all organic? How much of it is psychological? How much of it is just a combination of stressors? And, and we get into a lot of these discussion points in this, in this podcast. Dr. Rowe is a wealth of knowledge. He is unbelievably well-trained and, and well-read and well-thought through. So, you know, without wasting any more time, I hope you enjoy my interview with Dr. Peter Rowe. All righty. Well, welcome, Peter. So happy to have you here on Dr. M's Women and Children First podcast from Baltimore, Maryland, the home of Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine, where the motto is Veritas Vos Liberabit, or truth will set you free. I love that statement because in medicine, the truth is constantly changing. And the more we spend time uh, acknowledging where the truth is each time as it changes, we do get set free and more pathways towards healing and health. So welcome. Thank you. Nice to be with you. I, I want to start like I do with most of the podcasts with, with some work that you've written, um, sort of lay the framework for where we're going to go. And I want to read back from your, a 2017 paper you had in Frontiers in Medicine. Uh, and you wrote, quote, myalgic encephalomyelitis, otherwise known as chronic fatigue syndrome, is a complex disease that affects children and adolescents as well as adults. The etiology has not been established. While many pediatricians and other healthcare providers are aware of MECFS, they often lack essential knowledge that is necessary for diagnosis and treatment. Many young patients experience symptoms for years before receiving a diagnosis, end quote. 
then from a second article in Autoimmunity Reviews from 2018, a, a, a group led by Schatzny wrote, although the exact pathogenesis is still unknown, the most plausible hypothesis is that dysregulation of the immune system, autonomic nervous system, and metabolic disturbances contribute to this complex syndrome in which severe fatigue and cognitive impairment are a central feature. Stressful life events are frequently associated with disease onset, concomitantly with a history of frequent recurrent infections, immune deficiency, and autoimmunity. And I'm actually going to add after that, that's the end of the quote, but also it seems to be allergy as well. So P Peter, with all this in mind, you are the expert up there in chronic fatigue syndrome. Let's begin with define MECFS, and also then follow that up with what you believe is the causal and or hypothetical route to the pathophysiology of the disease. Okay, yeah, let's uh, start a bit with the, the nomenclature. The, the term chronic fatigue syndrome came out of some investigations of an outbreak back in um, Incline Village, Nevada in the 80s. And it has uh, been a, a label that most of the patients hate because it really doesn't capture the totality of the, of the illness. People use the word uh, myalgic encephalomyelitis that was coined back in 1955 when there was an outbreak in a hospital in England. And it's stuck as the term in, in England, uh, but uh, uh, they're really, not everybody, especially in pediatrics has myalgias and there's no evidence of true encephalitis uh, or encephalomyelitis with cells in the spinal fluid but there is some emerging data on uh, PET scans of some cerebral inflammation. In any event, uh, the CDC and the NIH ended up having a compromised view and just said, let's just call it MECFS uh, for now. Uh, I think pending better pathophysiologic understandings. Um, I was on a committee back in 2014 and 15 from the Institute of Medicine, where we tried to look at the literature and come up with a better case definition. Uh, and so the defining features of the illness were a, a marked impairment in what the person was able to do in the past before they got sick, usually accompanied by, by, by quite profound fatigue. The second core, core uh, feature was unrefreshing sleep. The third was post-exertional malaise, which is not unique to MECFS, but it, it helps differentiate it from, say, depression where any increase in uh, physical or cognitive activity makes people much more symptomatic, often for several days, but at least for 24 hours. And uh, that was a puzzling feature that we can come back to, uh, but there's been some nice scientific work backing it up. And then you had to have either cognitive impairment or orthostatic intolerance. Uh, the orthostatic intolerance is now found to be even more prevalent than was evident back then in 2015. Uh, uh, and is seen in 90% of the adults and close to 100% of the pediatric patients. Uh, and it's interesting that the same thing is, is uh, turning out to be the case for long COVID. Yeah, and for the parents that are listening, orthostatic intolerance is the, the inability to maintain blood pressure while standing or rising from a laying or sitting position, which makes you feel either uh, weak or you actually will pass out. All right, continue, thanks. Yeah, yeah, so, so actually there's a fair number of, of uh, circulatory problems. One of the interesting um, pieces of work that's come out of the Netherlands from uh, some friends of mine uh, Franz Visser and Linda Van Kampen, two cardiologists that deal with adults who have uh, MECFS, they, they have a neat technique of measuring brain blood flow. 
where they put a Doppler ultrasound probe on each of the four vessels that bring blood flow to the brain, the internal carotids and the vertebral arteries. And it takes about 20 seconds to capture the flow through those vessels. But what they can do is add those four flows up and then you've got total brain blood flow going in. And what they find is that compared to healthy people, uh, uh, the uh, adults with uh, ME-CFS have the same cerebral blood flow, brain blood flow, uh, when they're lying flat. But when you tilt them upright so that they're in a near standing position on a tilt table, they have, the healthy people have a 7% reduction in brain blood flow. The CFS patients have a 26% reduction on average, which is extraordinary. And it, it begins to explain why patients have so much trouble thinking and concentrating and finding the right word. When they break their group down, and it was a huge study, 429 adults, they found that about 60% of them had normal heart rate and blood pressure responses to the tilt test. So uh, there was only a small proportion that had uh, relevant uh, uh, postural tachycardia syndrome where the heart rate goes way up or a delayed uh, drop in blood pressure. So the vast majority of these people without these ultrasound techniques would have been told, you're fine, there's nothing wrong right. with your blood pressure, see you later. Right. That's fascinating. Yeah. Yeah, and, so, and, that, and, and is that in kids the same way? They, ha they are adult cardiologists. They've, they've looked at a few of the adolescents uh, and they find the same thing in them. Uh, we find that when we do standing tests on them, it just takes 10 minutes in the office, five minutes uh, lying flat and then 10 minutes leaning against the wall that almost all of our patients have an exacerbation in their symptoms. They get lightheaded, more tired, they can't think and concentrate. And we can identify postural tachycardia syndrome where you need a 40 beat increase in your heart rate in a, a large proportion of them. But what we're really looking for is does this simple act of standing still make your symptoms worse? And then we go about treating them. Right. And so these are the, the questions that parents can listening to this and the clinicians listening to this. These are the questions to ask folks and then demonstrate in the office if possible, if you're worried about this disorder. OK, yeah. so yeah. so continue on the, the hypothetical or the known pathophysiologic reasoning behind the defined disease you just laid out. So in many instances, it follows an infection. It, it is most commonly seen after mononucleosis. So somewhere around 14% of people after an acute mono episode will have will meet the criteria for ME-CFS after six months. So, so that's a common one, but it doesn't explain all of the cases as far as we're aware. Some of them come on after a sinus infection, which would be bacterial in origin. Others might have this after surgery or some sort of trauma. Uh, and there are a group that could be as many as 40% of them who we think had no infectious trigger and it just starts up really gradually. Um, whether those are people like the folks that we're now realizing with long COVID who had asymptomatic infections. So it, it's possible that, that all of it is post-infectious, uh, but we haven't thought that way until recently because um, what predicted whether you got ME-CFS after mono was the severity of the initial infection. That concept has been turned on its head with COVID. So it's right. mostly these mild infections that are, that are really causing tremendous havoc. Uh, so in, we still don't know what the infections do to trigger the uh, orthostatic intolerance and the circulatory problems. 
the, the circulation is one of the more treatable problems in this illness. But we also find that 30% of our adolescent CFS patients have uh, allergies uh, or intolerance of milk protein. So milk protein is a, is a big uh, uh, risk factor. Taking milk out of the diet makes their upper intestinal symptoms better, but it doesn't, uh, it doesn't do a whole lot to treat the overall illness. But so why are, why are they so much more um, intolerant of specific foods? Uh, certain proportion of them also have something that's been described in the last decade called mast cell activation syndrome, where the mast cells that are involved in the allergic response really start spitting out their contents in, indiscriminately, causing lots of symptoms throughout the body. So, so those are a couple of the um, uh, phenomena that we need to be able to explain with any hypothesis about what's causing the illness. And then there's another group that says, you know, it may just be that this is an overall stress response to an illness that all of us have, but when we get rid of the infection, that stress response turns down. Whereas in MECFS, it may be that the, that the uh, system that's supposed to protect us from infection stays revved up, causing all sorts of downstream effects in the nervous system, especially the autonomic nervous system that controls heart rate and blood pressure. So they, there's one group that has a, a drug that binds to a receptor in the brain that can kind of overdrive the stress response and make it return to normal. So that, that work is uh, very early in the clinical stages, but it's, uh, it's, an, it's an appealing theory about the illness. So if I can recap this, what I'm hearing is it's a complex web. There's no simple route to this disorder from what I read in a bunch of different papers. And I think you've touched on it in yours as well. Psychological stress often can be a major component to this. And I think of one patient recently, I've had many different patients who fit this disorder, but recently had one. And after a year of work and doing a heavy amount of work with this. So it became very clear after questioning that the patient had a significant event that occurred right before within three weeks of the onset of the symptoms. And then somewhere after that developed a post-viral syndrome. So it was almost like the psychological stressor triggered an immune change that made the child no longer immune solvent, which allowed the infection to persist. And in this case, it was a high burden of Epstein-Barr viral uh, activity or mono. And so I, I start to think about this complex web as, you know, you look at this and say, okay, what are the antecedent triggers of these disorders? Clearly there's a genetic predisposition, right? Certain folks have some genes that are, I know I looked and found some articles looking at toll-like receptors or innate immune function, low natural killer cell activity. So these, these immune cells that are there to help suppress viral activity may be off combined with this massive psychological stressor that allows, you know, the immune system to be maybe dysregulated a little more, which allows the virus to persist. And then maybe that persistence of the virus, like you said, is taxing the system to a point that they're no longer able to, to maintain normal function immunologically, vascularly, or, or neurologically. And I, I start to wonder if that's the main play here is that it's a, a totality of the events, not a singular one. Um, but that, that's where I sort of am, am following on this. And when we look at this disorder, does it seem to me, or it seems to me, but does it seem to you that there's a predilection for a gender specific specificity, a, a, um, 
age specificity and or a um, ethnic specificity because I couldn't find much research there, but it seems to me I've seen more patients with this that were of Caucasian uh, makeup and more females than males. Yeah, so all, all of those are, are really interesting points that we puzzle over. Um, that we can see this, it's been reported in children as young as two, but it's gonna be pretty hard to know, you know what's affecting their uh, overall activity if it, if it uh, shuts down. We don't see very many children under the age of 10, but it's thought that the gender distribution under 10 is about equal. Once okay. you hit the pubertal growth spurt, uh, then it's about a three or four to one female to male uh, condition. And you know, we know that uh, there are several things that might be involved in that. One is that when, uh, female blood pressures are about 10 millimeters of mercury lower than male blood pressures. There may be the effects of uh, hormones that protect males in terms of uh, things like testosterone. Uh, and uh, you know, but but it's really unexplained. The the other uh, factor that can um, be a risk factor for MECFS is joint hypermobility, which is present from birth. So we see about 60% of our patients having really loose ligaments uh, from stretchy connective tissue. And you know, the obvious thing is that they can do tricks with their, with their joints, but that right. same connective tissue is also there in their blood vessels and may be contributing to worsening of the circulatory disorders my, uh, my Dutch colleagues have just submitted a paper showing that if you have joint hypermobility, you get an even greater reduction in brain blood flow uh, when you're upright. But what's interesting is that, that you'd think the joint hypermobility patients would have a more gradual onset of symptoms. When we looked at that hypothesis, we, we didn't find any of our pre-study uh, 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 thoughts to, to pan out. The kids who are hypermobile with MECFS are the same as the ones who aren't hypermobile. So there's some other factor that's involved there. Um, that's interesting. Then uh, in, in terms of ages, uh, there's a huge spike in incidence in adolescence, and then another one at about 30 to 40, uh, at least according to some Scandinavian studies. Uh, it doesn't keep getting more common the older you get. So there's a sort of, uh, the, the modal presentation is probably around 40. Um, but adolescents certainly uh, are the ones at greatest risk. And that's also being seen in the COVID uh, patients. There's very little long COVID, in, in, meaning uh, post-COVID symptoms lasting more than six months in the kids under 10. But once you get into adolescence and early adult life, it really uh, increases. And then in terms of, of the racial and ethnic uh, patterns, there's a complete discrepancy between the epidemiologic studies that are population-based where they where they're where there's no bias in who they're enrolling and then any clinicians experience so there's a study uh, on pediatric MECFS in Chicago where they found that the highest incidence or highest prevalence of the disease was in blacks and Hispanics and the lowest was in whites and they had studied the same thing about 20 years ago in adults and found the same thing. We find that about 95% of our clinic patients are Caucasians. And that uh, of the black kids that are part of the clinic, often they, they come from families uh, where the parents were professionals. 
so that they had a different life experience than, than perhaps the majority of African-American patients or people in the country. Uh, does that, what, what is that all about? Are, are, are we missing a large proportion of the African-Americans that the epidemiologic studies say have this? Or have they captured the wrong group, right? Have they just said, well, anybody with anxiety and depression is fitting into the category with chronic fatigue syndrome? Right. Is there a, a blood pressure factor that protects African-Americans? Is there something in their uh, genes, not just uh, in, in the racial uh, side of things? And then in Australia, uh, there's a, a physician there, Kathy Rowe, no relation to me, but she's run a big chronic fatigue syndrome clinic for a long time. She published a paper on that, that described the population in Melbourne, Australia, as maybe 50% or could be as little as 25% Caucasian. It's a very metropolitan or cosmopolitan city. But uh, in their CFS clinic, something like 95% of their patients are Caucasian. So they have no financial barriers to healthcare in Australia. So it's not that people were being kept out. They're just not seeing what the epidemiologic uh, studies suggest. And in their Caucasian population, most of them are Celtic, so Irish, Scottish, English, and uh, Scandinavian. And that would even uh, pose the, the thought that this could be somehow involved in mitochondrial genetics uh, because those, those uh, mitochondrial genes affected when and where people migrated thousands of years ago. So it's a very complicated question. I don't think we would be missing all of the African-American kids in the Hopkins clinics. I would think they would get referred to me if they had CFS. So I, I'm of the opinion that the epidemiologic studies are somehow incorrect. Yeah, and I would have to parrot that truth as well, because we have no barriers at our clinic to um, access to care based on racial or ethnic lines. And, and again, I state you know, that our clinic seems to be predominantly Caucasian teenagers. So yeah, that, that's, that's some interesting stuff. So let's, let's pivot a little bit. I, I would even say in terms of the thing you were raising earlier about psychological stressors, I think uh, it's well known that in, in poorer communities, the, the amount of adverse childhood experience is way higher. And I think that's the case if you take all uh, blacks in the United States versus all whites, that, that, that they would be exposed to more of these adverse childhood experiences. So you'd think it would predispose to uh, that same disruption of the immune system that makes them vulnerable to the next infection. Correct. Uh, I, I would tend to think that would be the case as well. So again, hearkening back to probably a higher genetic predisposition for the population that's affected thereafter. So let's pivot a little bit to some of the work you've done with physical findings. So you touched on it briefly, and we've seen this in our clinic, the hypermobility uh, you know, is just the, the, the joints being sinewy, but also even as much as almost, I had one patient that I thought had Ehlers-Danlos. Now our geneticist said she didn't, but man, she fit that to me yeah. based on criteria. But what about things like um, cervical stenosis, decreased range of motion of upper limb function um, for the clinicians that listen to this podcast, Hoffman sign, you know, so yeah. tell us a little bit about how you work up a patient um, aside from the vascular uh, heart rate changes and, and the stuff you've already spoken to. Yeah, so most of the, the uh, effort is on clarifying the history and the connection between the symptoms. We look really carefully for orthostatic intolerance, but that can be influenced by a lot of these other conditions like the joint hypermobility. 
Um, we've we were working with uh, we've been working with some really good physical therapists in the state, and and I've written a few papers with my colleague Rick Violin, who's a masterful physical therapist in Ellicott City, and we sent these patients to Rick initially because he had figured out how to address some of the autonomic nervous system problems in some of our patients. And it was fascinating that he could reproduce their lightheadedness if they were lying flat on the table by putting a, a strain on the nerves in their arms. Uh, and I thought, well, this has got to be important. So we started trying to understand that. And we, we had a couple of patients who were college age where we just, uh, we thought, something Rick was doing in his assessment was, was triggering symptoms so they'd be much more tired uh, the next day. So these college students came in, we measured heart rate and blood pressure and pulse oximeter as we progressively raised their leg up to 60 degrees. And we were uh, successful in reproducing their symptoms, but we saw no changes in the circulation. So something about putting a, str a strain on the peripheral nerves was capable of reproducing their symptoms. And we've studied that in, in a couple of different ways, just finding that about 80% of our patients have some restriction in range of motion. Even though some of them are flexible, they have uh, localized areas of restricted range of motion of the limbs and spine. And treating that in manual physical therapy uh, with manual physical therapy techniques often can help them tolerate activity better. So it's as if this, the nervous system is stiff and non-compliant initially. And as, you, as the person gets better, sometimes with physical therapy, sometimes with treatment of the circulation, um, these movement restrictions disappear. So that's another mystery about how symptoms uh, develop. Like what's going on? Did a virus make the, uh, the nerves, purple nerves stiff and swollen? Well, we know that, that viruses can be um, can have a tropism for uh, tropism for the nerves, uh, but really it's it's not well explained. And then along the way, over time, we'd had a couple of patients who had uh, brisk reflexes and this Hoffman sign, which is uh, uh, basically a flicking of the, the distal part of the middle finger, and you're looking for whether the first finger and the thumb have a flexion response. It's a, it's a reflex that neurosurgeons view as the Babinski of the upper limb. And if you look at asymptomatic people who have a positive Hoffman, they usually have an MRI that shows a bulging disc or some problem in the neck. So we had a couple of patients that I'd been following. I'd been following this one girl for about six or seven years. Her neuro exam was always normal. Then, then her physical therapist found that her neck muscles were a bit asymmetric and tight. He wanted her to come back and see me. And so we had her annual visit and she had a Hoffman sign that was abnormal. So we got an MRI and she had, it turned out, congenital narrowing of the whole spinal canal. She'd obviously had this from the beginning, but didn't have any reflexes that showed it until six years into the, the illness. She had one small bulging disc that probably you and I would tolerate without any symptoms, but because there was no room in the spinal canal for the cord and this bulging disc, she was probably having symptoms from that. And her parents found a spine surgeon, uh, Charles Edwards at Mercy Hospital, who they had known socially. And, and he looked at her MRI and said, well, I don't know anything about your tachycardia or your fatigue, but we need to do a disc replacement here because if you get in a whiplash injury, you're going to really have some neurologic damage. And Probably what we had missed in that case, Chris, was the fact that this girl's mother had had uh, 
congenital cervical stenosis as well, and two neck operations, really pretty young for that kind of thing in, their, in her 30s. So anyway, this girl gets a single disc replacement, and she's basically been unable to attend school after 10th grade. And by two months after the surgery, she was taking a job as a dog walker, started back up into, into uh, classes at, at college, and six months later took a job where she was uh, uh, working at a dude ranch in Colorado, where her job was to saddle the horses and take people out on a ride. So she was completely transformed and back to normal. The other interesting thing is that with the illness, she'd had this free floating, unexplained anxiety that her psychiatrist couldn't fix. The anxiety disappeared when she had the, the surgical uh, disc replacement. And you know her, her favorite sport now is rock climbing, like she's fully better. And we, we followed that up by recognizing the Hoffman signs in two other patients who'd been well worked over by uh, neurologists. But I think they attributed these patients' reflexes to some of the medicines they were on for anxiety. Both of them got better. And one of them uh, came back to see me three months after surgery. And she, she's a young adult. And she uh, had been cleared at the two-month point by the surgeon to to have full activity. This was somebody who couldn't tolerate a five minute walk to the store without a day of increased symptoms. And I said, well, what have you done in the last month? And she looked a little sheepishly over at her fiance and they said, well, we went to a wedding shower out at the Wisp uh, Resort. And we thought since we're here, we might as well do some skiing. And so we did a couple of runs down the mountain. This girl was otherwise in a wheelchair before. It was an astonishing reversal of fortunes. And, and then a couple of months later, I got another email from her where she was in Vail skiing. And uh, the second picture, first picture was her on top of the mountain. Second picture was her getting uh, loaded into the ski patrol sled because she'd been skiing uh, down the hill and tore her ACL. So any, any, any patient who's been able to uh, go skiing after they had chronic fatigue syndrome is doing pretty well. Yeah, it's incredible. And I think, again, the news to use here for clinicians and parents alike is to, to understand that there are possibilities here within a subset of the chronic fatigue patients who, if they have this positive Hoffman sign and these signs of cervical stenosis, that surgery may be, and like you're saying, may be beneficial for these specific patients. So I think that's very important for folks to cue in on that, yeah. that, you know, patients can ask the physicians and if they don't understand it, then we'll get referred to a clinic like yours or Vanderbilt. Um, but that's important to know because, yeah, it, one again. Other, I was going to say one other thing that we're seeing that's also structural is that in the patients that have the loose ligaments, they can have enough uh, laxity at the skull base that they report that their head feels heavy and unsupported, like a bobble-headed feeling, or they can get worse symptoms with certain neck positions turning their head or um, or bending forward. And we've had a number of patients that have been operated on because they have uh, uh, CT scans that show way too much excessive motion at the skull base where, you know, the connection of the skull to the spinal, to the, uh, the vertebrae is really through a lot of strong ligaments. And if they weaken, the people have lots of circulatory dysfunction, headache, and neck pain. Right, right. These are, these are all important. So you did a uh, published a paper this year um, looking at long COVID in three cases. And, and, I, and I noticed in that paper that I think one or even two of the patients had cervical stenosis as well. So, you know, clearly long COVID may just be chronic fatigue syndrome triggered by 
you know, SARS-2, it sounds like to me. And then again, the subset of possibility with these folks having structural abnormalities that are fixable. Yeah, th- those those guys had a Hoffman sign, but they didn't actually have the cervical stenosis. So, okay. It, 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 but it raises another interesting question. Why is the nervous system this irritable? Why are we yeah. evidence of nervous system irritability, even in patients that don't have the, the structural problems? Uh, and again, it suggests that something, the virus has done something to affect nervous system function. Um, it was, um, uh, yeah, the, these are the, the, the similarity between these patients and our MECFS patients was, was quite strong. And my colleagues in the Netherlands have, have looked at their first uh, dozen or so patients with long COVID, and they find that these are incredibly strongly overlapping problems. They have the reduction in brain blood flow. The CFS patients and the long COVID patients have the same symptoms. The difference, I think, is that many different infections can trigger ME-CFS. And if you start off with mono, it makes sense that you're going to have a slightly different initial uh, experience. You'll have a sore throat. You'll have an enlarged spleen. With COVID, you're going to have more respiratory problems, probably, uh, loss of taste and smell. But by the six-month point, you're probably getting the same group of symptoms. And so we we view SARS-CoV-2 as just another virus that can trigger MECFS. It must, and, and the, the hope is that with uh, all of the scientific eyes trained on that infection, we'll come up with a better understanding of, of the mechanism for these uh, circulatory and other symptoms. Yeah, it'd be really nice to see some machine learning looking at the serum samples and maybe other C, uh, CSF samples looking for even autoimmune possibilities. I know when I first started looking at SARS-2 and just COVID in general, there's a significant uptick in autoimmune antibodies in yeah. folks that had that had disease. Now, the tricky part for me here is if the patients that are teenagers that are getting long COVID tend to have asymptomatic or mild disease, that's a bit strange to have a significant amount of autoimmune effect because autoimmunity tends to follow cellular damage. But not impossible. I would love to see where that goes because I know looking at some of the autoimmune data, it's not a slam dunk by any stretch, but they do find a higher preponderance of patients with positive ANAs and positive other uh, nuclear proteins. And I wonder, again, going back to your really earlier comment about milk intolerance and allergies, that's clearly a setup for what I call dysfunctional antigen presentation. So part of our immune system is overreacting to self tissue and or you know, normal things like food. And does that have a chronic feed forward effect that eventually sets the system up for dysfunction? I know we talked off offline a little bit about the microbiome, which is one of my most favorite topics. And I know with Alessio Fasano's work, they found the microbiome significantly altered in kids that had MIS. I know in a bunch of published papers, dysbiosis seems to be a routine issue in folks that have CFS. And I think, again, it's necessary, but not causal, because if it was the only thing all of the dysbiotic patients would have it, we know that's not the case. So there clearly is something different happening in these patients and it's multifactorial web of how it comes to pass. But I think the immune dysregulation piece has to be the biggest piece of it. I know there was one study in adults where they use rituximab, and that's the only one I saw that had some significant benefits in some of the patients. So actually blocking an antibody function. So 
there's more to this um, coming. And, and do we have anything in preprint or anything you know that's coming that may shed some more light on this side of it? Well, the, let me go back to the rituximab story. You know, this was, it was a neat observation by these oncologists in Norway. They had a patient who'd been sick for about 20 years with, with uh, MECFS who developed a lymphoma. And when they were treating her lymphoma with the rituximab, her MECFS got better. She went out back to exercising, doing yard work, like she felt really, really good. And uh, at the end of her therapy, she was still doing well, but about three to six months after her chemo ended, she got the return of her MECFS symptoms. And she went back to these guys, uh, Dr. Flugi in, uh, in um, Norway, and said, you know, can I have more of that poison? Um, <laughs> And, and uh, you know, I think actually, I think she'd been treated with methotrexate during for the for the chemo. And he said, well, let's not give you methotrexate, but let's try rituximab. And she it took about a month or two to get better. And then she was good again for another six months or so. And this car, the improvement correlated with when her B cells, which make the antibodies and the autoantibodies, um, when, when they were down to zero, it took about two or three months to mop up the, the uh, cellular inflammation, he thinks. Uh, then she had uh, good function until the B cell numbers started to come back up again. And so the initial uh, clinical series that they, um, they wrote up was followed by a small pilot trial that also looked encouraging. And then when they did a much larger clinical trial, multi-center trial in Norway, rituximab had zero effect. So what, we don't know what explains the discrepancy between their earlier clinical observations and the trial results, which didn't back them up, but they're also looking at other forms of chemotherapy and they're looking very hard at the antibody um, patterns. Uh, they, they collaborate with a, a very good scientist named Carmen Scheibenbogen in Berlin and her group has published some really neat work showing that there's a network of antibodies directed at the different autonomic receptors that we all have. And that uh, probably what happens with an infection is there's some dysregulation of this network of antibodies and autoantibodies uh, that, that uh, leads to disease. But exactly what does that is, is unclear. Um, one other thing about your, your comments about the gut is that we are finding uh, largely based on some observations by a physician named Larry Afrin, who's a hematologist. Larry's been a, a studying mast cell activation syndrome for uh, the last 25, 30 years. And he proposes that the patients who get really sick with, with acute COVID are people who have a lot of allergic inflammation from the mast cells that has been unrecognized. And the mast cells can spit out all sorts of uh, cytokines and other things that could harm the tissues. And so he thinks that the, the group that goes on to have really severe fatal uh, problems with acute COVID probably have mast cell activation that is unchecked. In contrast, his patients and our experience has been the same who have recognized mast cell activation and are on treatment like antihistamines and chromalin and uh, Singular and so on that calm down the mast cells' ability to orchestrate a cytokine storm. Those patients are sailing through COVID infection with minimal trouble. Whereas I think everybody would have thought these guys are sitting ducks at the beginning of the pandemic and are at great risk. But as as we've seen with our asthmatic patients, they're not 
they're not the ones that get the worst disease, maybe because some of their treatments are, are protecting them from an aggressive mast cell response. Yeah, I remember clearly in February, March of 2019 or 2020, when this whole thing started, being very worried about folks on immunosuppression, all that. It turned out it was very clear if you're on chronic immunosuppression, that was stable to the point of not suppressing your immune system in a way that's completely dysfunctional. They did great. And to your yeah. point, the allergic and asthmatic patients did well. Also, I think where we're seeing struggles is folks that have new onset disease that get put on some major drugs and get just a complete dysfunctional immune uh, suppression that those folks could be at a little bit more risk. But yeah, that was that, that for me was the, the first sign that, okay, we're dealing with something very, very different here when it comes to that inflammation is the major player in this game. Yeah. And folks that have antecedent risk factors for inflammation, which unfortunately is a lot of people in America, that's why we have the highest risk of death worldwide, uh, despite you know, all of our modern medical system and the ability to take care of patients, we're, we're struggling because we have metabolic disarray everywhere from our dietary choices, lifestyle choices, inherent mental stress, all the other things that I think are the direct precursors to immune dysregulation. I think they're the, where the headwaters are starting. And I, and, and so again, when I see these kids and I talk to them and I find out there was a major psychological stressor somewhere within a month of that infection, that's the, to me, there's something there. And, and so let's segue there, because I think you've now perfectly laid out what CFS is, how it looks, what are the physical findings for parents and clinicians alike to, to understand in the office so they can pick these folks out. So now let's pivot over to what do you do with these patients primarily? I know you have a multi-pronged approach, but take it from, let's say, one of those three long COVIDs or one of your more recent CFS patients. What would you do? with them, pharmacologically, therapy-wise, stress reduction, the whole nine yards? Yeah, so we, uh, a big part of this is to explain that, um, you know, just because they feel lightheaded when they, they are upright, we don't want them flat in bed because that can sometimes aggravate the uh, circulatory problem. You know, the, uh, if, if you're in, on complete bed rest for three weeks, you can lose about 15% of your plasma volume. So you'd, even, you'd aggravate the dehydration that they're already dealing with. Um, so we talk to them a lot about things. We don't want them really powering through to do a, a rigid exercise advancement. We want them to do something every day. Maybe it just means walking down to the end of the road to, to get the mail. Um, or one block around the house, or even if they're really impaired, just a bit of activity uh, on their backs. Uh, but I want them to do a certain amount of, of uh, uh, activity. Uh, and then every three or four days that they don't flare up the post-exertional malaise, they can increase a little bit. So as an example, we had a girl a long time ago who had had chronic fatigue syndrome after scoliosis surgery. And uh, we found that she had uh, postural tachycardia syndrome. We put her on a couple of medicines and that helped her, that helped enable her to do some activity. And she wanted to try to get fitter. And so I said, pick something that doesn't make you dizzy. So she found a treadmill and that made her really lightheaded. So she then switched to a recumbent uh, exercise bike and she started with two minutes a day. And every three days that she tolerated that, she went up by 30 seconds. So she never doubled on a good day or tripled her, her exercise volume. And she started quite conservatively, but she'd been really sick for several years. By three months into this, she was doing a half an hour every day. 
and that allowed her to jettison one of her medications to support her blood pressure. So the exercise, once you tolerate it, can be helpful, but it, it, we're, we're really, um, we're addressing uh, their circulation with a higher intake of salt and fluids, um, with medications to support the blood pressure and heart rate and the brain blood flow. We look carefully for any other allergies that they might have, both uh, milk allergy, uh, which we look for by the presence of upper abdominal pain, gastroesophageal reflux, and then early satiety. They feel full easily. Uh, and in those patients, we'll take them off milk for two weeks and see if milk was a culprit. Every now and then it's more than just milk. They might be allergic to soy or egg. Uh, we look for these movement restrictions, send them to a physical therapist to see if they can identify other areas of, of tissue uh, tightness and treat that. We treat uh, migraine headaches if they're present. Many of the patients have trouble getting to sleep. They're really exhausted, but by the evening, they're tired but wired, as, as the phrase goes. They just can't fall asleep. It's like their, their autonomic nervous system can't settle down at night. So we'll work on, on insomnia uh, and really any other, uh, other condition, including anxiety or low mood if they're present trying to gain you know, another 10% of function here and there. And then we see them back at one to two month intervals because I think it requires a lot of tinkering and, and, and uh, small, small changes to get them doing better. Uh, among the medicines that we use for the orthostatic intolerance, we try things that improve their ability of the vessels to constrict. Uh, so a good medication for that, that all of our uh, pediatric colleagues are familiar with are the stimulant medicines that we use for ADHD. They're really good at improving circulation in these patients, uh, but we use drugs that can expand blood volume. We try to treat the menstrual dysfunction in, in the young women because many of them have much more fatigue around the time of their periods. So we'll often put them on a continuous active birth control pill that gives them a period every three months rather than monthly. Uh, so that can be helpful. And then you know, we just uh, sort of encourage them to, to continue trying to push their activity. But I find that it's, it's usually uh, the case that we have to enable uh, exercise rather than force them to do it to get better. And most of the kids will, uh, will um, willingly uh, expand their activity level once they feel better. So we don't have to cajole them to be more active. Yeah. Yeah, it, so, it sounds like it's as expected because it's such a complex disorder. You have to attack it for multiple different avenues and then reiterate over and over again because each person is unique and there's no protocol-driven system per se because of the fact that there's such a disparate ways to get here. And then and do, do most or if not all of these folks get psychological counseling? We tend not to focus on that. There was a lot of work uh, you know, in the last 25 years suggesting that cognitive behavioral therapy was curative. And I think, you know, as you know, cognitive behavioral therapy is fine as, a, as helping people with anxiety and depression and coping with a chronic illness. But to suggest that it was curative was really a silly hypothesis in the first place. And they were sort of blaming the patients in, in Europe, right. and, uh, the United Kingdom. Um, and if they didn't get better with cognitive behavioral therapy, the parents often had the child separated from them. There were some absolutely horrendous decisions made because people swallowed this um, really completely non-empirically based theory, hook, line, and sinker. So there's a lot of harm done to people. Um, 
so we'll, we'll, we find that people often cope better as they start to realize that they can feel better, that there's something right. to be done. Uh, we have a number of patients that are followed by the behavioral psychologists at the Kennedy Krieger Institute, uh, and, and uh, they do great work, but um, not everybody can afford the cost of, of uh, psychological counseling. So I think some of what happens is that patients are validated when they go into the physical therapy office, that, mm -hmm. that they're listened to there. And, and um, so we, we tend to reserve the psychological referrals for those who have really severe anxiety or more severe depression. Yeah, so from what I'm hearing you saying makes a lot of sense that if they're not significantly broken by an ACE or something else that happened to them, pre-disease, then more about shifting perception through the modalities of, hey, I feel better, therefore my perception is going to change, or I'm validated by different therapists who are saying, hey, you're doing great, you're going to keep getting better. And I think uh, I did a podcast with Dave Rakel, University um, of Wisconsin, and one of the things we did talk about heavily was perceptions, very important. And so I think to your point, before needing some major psychological intervention, it does sound to me like perception shifting may be the most important part of it. And, and you, the clinician in the room, could actually start that process right away by saying, hey, I see tons of these cases. Therefore, this is what the outcome will look like. You're going to get better. It's going to take a while, but that's okay because we're going to work together. So I think a lot of that can be brought to bear for the patient. I know in, in the clinic, in our office, that's what we're doing. And then if we do look for those bigger ACEs, and if they're there, we do send them to a, a much more intensive counseling side. Do you find that um, you often need to use anti-anxiety meds or the, the, the system tends to do better without that? Or is it really just reserved for those folks, again, that have significant mental disorders? It's mainly for the ones with the more uh, severe uh, impairment. But one of the things that we'll do is the serotonin reuptake inhibitor medications like Lexapro and Zoloft actually have a bit of vasoconstrictor function. So if we've mm -hmm. got somebody who's been sort of beaten down by the chronicity of the illness, the fact that they can't get to school, that they can't participate in sports and activities like they had before, and their mood is a bit low, that might lead us to pick uh, something like Lexapro as a first line agent. So uh, again, trying to, trying to match the treatments to what that individual is telling us. But I, I want to go back to your earlier point. One of the things that often happens is that because the, the physical exam findings are there, but not part of our routine pediatric um, examination, sometimes nobody's found an, a, a problem on the exam. And they, they've begun to wonder, since they've seen four or five people already, uh, is, is this in my head as people have been suggesting? So a big part of turning around the perception is we find the problem with the standing test, we find the abnormality on the PT screening tests or the neurologic test, and, and we let them know, yeah, you've got a long list of symptoms, but it's the same monotonous list from one patient to the next. If they were making this stuff up, there would be a lot of variability, but we don't see that. We see it in the kid from California and the kid from Salisbury, uh, that that's the same monotonously consistent list of symptoms. And so, just emphasizing that, that we've seen this before and here's, here's the plan for getting better often helps lift their spirits. And again, there's more of the news to use for the parents and clinicians listening. Don't skip over these kids when they have these complaints and symptoms. Look for it, um, review the 
the, the, the physical findings and, and if not, at least send them to somebody who can look a little deeper into figuring this out because the longer you wait, the more the I think the psychological stress does become a negative, right? So if you look at, to me, again, immunologic solvency, one of the biggest risks to immunologic solvency is, is negative stress on the mind. And, and so getting that diagnosis early, I think is critical. And for me, in our patient population, we focus heavily on diet. I worry a lot, actually, um, that we're going to see more and more of these kids because the diagnosis of milk protein intolerance is going up. I mean, in 22 years of practice, I would say it was one in 100, one in 150 kids back in the 90s. Now it feels like it's one in four. I don't have hard numbers, but it's constant. And now we're having soy protein intolerance and corn protein intolerance in these kids. So if that's one of the antecedent risk factors, coupled to all of the other stuff happening in society, we may be in for big trouble, especially with COVID now being endemic. Um, this could be a new world of struggle for us as clinicians, having more and more of these patients showing up who have these antecedent genetic risk factors, antecedent environmental and immunologic risk factors. And now we have a, a virus that's more ubiquitous and more likely to trigger it like mono. Yeah. And so that's a bit worrisome for me. Mono, at least, you know, you get it once and it stays with you, but it looks like COVID we're going to be getting re-exposed to persistently. So this could be a whole new ball of wax that I'm grateful you're doing your work because you'll be on the front lines of watching this, but this scares me a little. Yeah, I think it's the same sort of uh, phenomenon with the uh, things like POTS, where I didn't, I don't think it was recognized when I was in training. There's maybe a paper in 1982 uh, that drew attention to it, but uh, it's exploded on the scene. Some people, like uh, colleagues at the Mayo Clinic, estimate that one in a hundred kids uh, might have POTS. Uh, and, you know, most of us, at least in my generation, we didn't see this level of dysfunction. But like the other changes that have occurred in the rates of asthma and allergies, in autism rates, in the rates of chronic fatigue syndrome, something must be driving this. And, and it's in too short a period of time for it to just be genetics. Right. Oh, I think exactly right. I think the genetics have always been there. I think it's the epigenetics that are triggering it. I, I was talking to William Parker at Duke. Um, I just uh, launched his podcast a couple of days ago. We were talking about the macrobiome, specifically parasite exposure, right? So I focus heavily in my work, looking at all the microbiome data. And I love the work with the Amish and Hutterite um, study that Stein did in New England Journal of Medicine a few years back. And William had an interesting point. They looked at the microbiome of the dust and the antigenic triggers that allowed the Amish children to not become atopic, but the Hutterites did. And he said, well, they... That doesn't mean it was the microbiome. He said it could have easily been the parasites because those kids are living on the farms. The animals are getting exposed to natural parasites. It could have actually been the microbiome, which seemed to be more correlative with autoimmune disease, specifically IBD and those kind of things. So I thought that was fascinating. And maybe it's both. And again, I tend to start to think of these things as webs. It may be the micro, the macro, the virus, all of these different, you know, uh, organisms in our society that have been with us forever have been challenging our immune system and our, our genetics and everything with no untoward effects. And all of a sudden within a short 50, 100 year period, we're going in the wrong direction every which way with disease. And so is it the combination of cleanliness, bad food, all of it, I think it is. And so, you know, to your point, I, I really think this is gonna be an interesting time, you know, in the next 20 years with burden of disease, you know, uh, you know my short 
22 year career seen massive change. I know your career seen massive change. It's going to be a bit, 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 bit crazy. I hope we get better treatments coming. And, and on that note, are there any treatments in the pipeline that you're aware of other than what we've spoken to so far? Yeah, so when, when we saw all of our uh, long COVID patients, um, we, we've found that um, a couple of them had very elevated histamine levels. They had a strong history of allergies that would be consistent with a mast cell activation. So we treated them all with antihistamines and famotidine. And there's a paper recently showing that in long COVID patients treated with antihistamines, there was a better response uh, several months later if they were given those drugs. So I think that'll be an interesting area to follow. Uh, and for the clinicians, the histamine level in the serum above two, what was what was the abnormal range? Yeah, they, they it's less than 1.8, I forget the units. And these patients were up around three and four. So it was, it okay. was, it was twice the upper limit of normal. Um, and they had you know uh, facial flushing, dermatographism, um, recurrent hives if they were exposed to certain oral antigens. So, uh, but you know, they weren't on a lot of therapy before they got sick. It's just, we, we felt like uh, because of the hypothesis about the mast cells being involved in post COVID inflammation that we needed to address that. Um, so, so that kind of approach seems newer. People are proposing that uh, some of the drugs in the angi angiotensin receptor blocker category might be worth exploring. Um, but I, I, I think we just need a lot more um, consistent observation and, and measurement and, and studies to be funded. I'm curious as to what berberine would do. I don't know if you've read much about berberine, the herb, but berberine apparently over time has a modulatory effect on gut microbiome in a positive way. So it helps enhance the right microbes, but it also has an effect on NK cell and TH1 activity. And I wonder if six months use of berberine might have an adjunctive effect in increasing the ability of the immune system to suppress viral activity that could be driving some of this stuff. But that's something in the back of my mind, I've been thinking about all the research I've done on berberine, a very interesting um, molecule um, to, to, to potentially have some benefit. At Hopkins, are you guys doing any machine learning with your patients yet? Has that started to show up? I haven't been. Uh, I don't know if others are doing that. There are a couple of long COVID clinics that have been organized, one at the Kennedy Krieger Institute for Pediatrics, and then another in the adult uh, arena, usually staffed by pulmonary specialists uh, and also physical medicine and rehab specialists. Um, but I'm not, and there are just tons of studies going on everywhere. Yeah, not, to me, I think that's another piece of the pie that we need to start getting involved because as smart as all of us are, I think the machines are able to do a much better job of grinding through some esoteric data that we may not see. Yeah. So I want to be conscious of your time. We're getting close to an hour at this point. So, uh, you know, I want to ask one final question, Peter. Uh, you're, you've been a fantastic wealth of knowledge for the parents and the clinicians for this tough disorder that we do see uh, very rarely, but we do see it. You know, I, one of the things I like to ask is if you had a magic ticket that you could give to the president or Congress and get something changed that would have a profound positive impact on society, mine is I would change school lunch. I think school lunch is the biggest nightmare in my mind for why kids are becoming unhealthy and dysfunctional. Do you have something in mind that you would take that ticket and give it in right away? 
I haven't thought about it for the whole of uh, society, but you know, when, when we think about it for how underserved the patients with these problems like ME-CFS and long COVID are, I think we need a Ryan White initiative like happened uh, for pediatric HIV back in the day uh, that provided funding for young scientists and clinicians in a field that might not have been as attractive as others at the time, but it created a network of clinics that collaborate on clinical trials and care of the patients. And you've seen this change in, in two main areas in, in pediatric medicine. One is in the cancer um, trial uh, system where just about every kid who gets leukemia is in a study. Uh, and that's been funded and coordinated around the country and the HIV studies that are also funded and coordinated. We need the same kind of funding to attract more physicians into this field and, and uh, combine their, their resources so that we have good numbers of patients in each of the studies. But it, you know, it doesn't happen in, a, in an area that's not a very lucrative clinical um, arena, right? It's not surgery, it's not ophthalmology. Right. Uh, we need somebody to fund this. And, and I think without it, we're gonna see large numbers of children unable to attend school because not because they don't want to be there, but because they can't physically. Right. right. Yeah. And I have a couple right now that are struggling with that situation as well. So to your point, I, I, I think funding and research is always the way to go. And as a society of uh, $21 trillion and whatever our tax base is, $4 trillion a year, we should be able to do these things. So I appreciate your thoughts on that. So Peter, any last comments? You are fantastic. I greatly appreciate your time and hour. So um, I'll leave it to you to finish up. Yeah, I, I would just remind people that as, as much as these illnesses can look like they're behaviorally driven, you want to validate the kid's experience. We have found very few to have a primary psychological cause and, and that, um, you know, keep digging. Look, look at, uh, you know, orthostatic intolerance due to what? Yeah. Well, that's the perfect segue to finish this up. Thank you so much, Peter, for your time, your knowledge, your hard work and dedication to the craft of medicine and, and the children. I know one of my favorite things to do right now is to have these podcasts because I get to speak to folks like you who are changing lives. You are actively out there making lives better. And for all of that hard work and all of your love for the kids, I'm very grateful. And thank you for your hour, Peter. Yeah. Thank you very much, Chris, for spreading the word. Well, wasn't that incredible? Uh, Dr. Rowe is absolutely an amazing teacher. I've learned so much from him uh, in previous conversations and now in this podcast as well. You know, for me, some of the biggest take-home points for the parents to listen to and the clinicians alike is one, his last point there. You know, don't always think everything that is hard to understand is psychological in nature. I think of this in medicine, we talk about idiopathic. We use the word idiopathic for anything we don't understand. So we call it idiopathic scoliosis, right? So the spine curve is abnormal. We're not sure why, so it's idiopathic. And really what that's saying is we're just idiots haven't figured it out. But the truth is for a long history of modern medicine and, and ancient medicine, those things in which we did not understand, we often subscribe to the world of psychological problems. And over and over again, it is becoming abundantly clear 
that this is not the case. Psychological issues exacerbate problems, but they're rarely the antecedent trigger of all of these massive physical changes that we're seeing. They can be a part of it. I'm not saying they're not a part of it, because they are. But to Dr. Rowe's point, there's a lot more going on behind the scenes, immunologically, with viruses that are causing dysfunction and 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 microbiome damage and all of these other possible upwater, upstream issues. So we really need to be very careful about making somebody's psychological state worse by saying it's in their head. And I know many of the patients I've talked to and treated, that's one of the things they came to me loaded with. Well, they say it's on my head. I have conversion disorder. I have X, Y, and Z. And I can tell you personally myself that 20-something years ago, I often subscribe many of these diseases to this pathway because I was uneducated and unlearned on these topics. And and really, truly, again, it comes down to this, because you don't know, therefore you think it must be some easier answer. And the answer is no. We need to dig deeper. We need to keep looking. We need to drive back into the upwater, upstream issues of where do these things go wrong? And if you're really astute, you're paying attention. Oh, by the way, X happened. And I've had cases... Even in the recent past where, you know, there was a, there was a psychological trigger, but the, the, the brain of the person was not particularly dysfunctional. They had a massive event change, but that was not the big issue. The big issue was multifactorial. And when we started to chip away at those stones, we, we got to a place where the person was able to come back from it. And so, you know, again, I think that is a major, major piece of this discussion. I think he also brought up some other really key points as a parent, as a clinician, paying attention to the soft signs, I call them. So the hypermobility, the ability of the joints to be very loose. You know, I think of Cirque du Soleil, these people that can contort themselves into crazy positions. If your child's sitting in a W, which is, you know, where their legs are flared out, sitting on their knees, you know, at age five, six, and seven, that's a bit odd. You know, so that's something that goes along with the milk protein intolerance now becoming ubiquitous. But again, these are all things we need to start paying attention to. The Hoffman sign, you know, the flicking of the finger, you know, all of these things that he is is letting us know about are the ones we want to start paying more attention to, to start drawing conclusions of our antecedent risks that may show up as disease down the road. For me, I look at every patient the same from some basic lifestyle perspectives. We need to really work on diet and stress and exercise and chemical avo- chemical and toxin avoidance. But then we really have to push a little harder on those folks that have higher risk, right? So if I know my patient has milk protein tolerance, I'm going to keep watching them over an eight, 10-year cycle. If I'm seeing dysfunctional abnormal bowel movements, if I'm seeing dysfunctional rashes, even though the patient otherwise feels normal, I'm going to keep talking to them about those risks, right? So if you keep exposing yourself to dairy, you may unfortunately end up with immune dysregulation because of dysbiosis and other things that then leads to a problem of chronic fatigue. And let me tell you folks, when you have a chronic fatigue child or patient or friend, you will see how dysfunctional this disease is, how debilitating, how much it takes out some of your happiness and your life. And, and, and so doing the work up front can save a lot of heartache down the road. And so, you know, for me, that's where the big push is from a, from a lifestyle perspective. You know, do we wait until we have disease to start changing? And I would hope the answer is no, because man, is it harder to change disease once it's already started. It's so much easier to change the antecedent risks of disease so the disease never shows up. And chronic fatigue and these other uh, issues like long COVID now, you know, 
we really need to start paying attention. You know, I, you know, I've said it many times before, how ridiculous it is that we are almost, you know, over two years into this pandemic and there's very little media coverage of the lifestyle factors that are driving disease risk, right? We know there are comorbidities, obesity, diabetes, heart disease, and, and um, uh, hypertension, but where are the conversations about where those diseases are coming from? And if you start changing those, maybe your immune system will re-regulate to some extent. And oh, by the way, you don't end up with bad COVID and therefore don't end up with long COVID or CFSME, right? So to me, this is where we really need to start having these conversations. You know, are we as a society and as parents and as friends sort of talking to each other about what's the best way to keep ourselves immune solvent. Because for me, that's really what I think the underlying major piece of the pie is, right? The major piece of this pie is immune solvency. If you remain immune solvent, you don't get the infections that then overwhelm your immune system secondarily, causing all this inflammation, which then drives disease. So remaining immune solvent is the biggest takeaway for all podcasts. But in this case, the big takeaway, as Dr. Rowe has stated, is we need to look at this from a multifactorial perspective, look at each patient individually, and then work backwards as to where we can change and, and iterate their outcome through iteration of treatment, right? And not just focusing on the psychological side, but focusing on many other avenues towards what we need to do. So therefore, I think that's enough for today. There are links to a bunch of this information in the newsletter and Salisbury Pediatrics uh, newsletter at the salisburypediatrics.com website. Um, I'm probably going to do a another newsletter in the near future. Well, be some more links there, but I think for now, Dr. Rowe has done an exceptional job of getting us to the next stage of understanding, and I will surely have him on again in a year or two or earlier, depending on how the science goes. So, you know, at this point, I'm going to let this go. And as always, hug your kids. Now for the disclaimer. The information provided in this newsletter is for educational and informational purposes only. It is not a substitute for advice and treatment provided by your physician or other healthcare professional and is not to be used to diagnose or treat a health issue. It does not constitute the formation of a provider-patient relationship. Information is copyrighted by Christopher J. Magrita and Kshish Media, LLC.